Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering and much more. So if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. I'm joined today by Professor Luke O'Neill, a professor of biochemistry in Trinity College Dublin, whose work has contributed significantly to the field of immunology. And among the accolades I could list, Luke has been awarded the prestigious Boyle Medal for Scientific Excellence and in 2016 was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society. But in addition to all of these academic achievements, Luke is also the author of two published books and has a popular weekly radio slot on News Talk with Pat Kenny, as well as appearing on our screens on many occasions in recent months. And so with all of this going on, Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. No problem, Megan. Happy to help. Brilliant. So I suppose we'll just start right in. I'm kind of interested into what you were like in school, what Luke O'Neill was like when he was maybe 10 or 12. And were you always interested in science or did you have different careers in mind or different aspirations? My God, that's a big question to ask. <laughs> it's too long ago. I'm too old. I can't remember. It's <laughs> a good question. I suppose I was always into science, yeah, like many of us, I guess. And uh, I remember vividly, actually, um, geology got me, strangely, first of all. I'm from Bray County, Wicklow. And then we used to go hiking in the sea scouts up in the Wicklow Mountains. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. How did, the, how, did the, how did those glaciated valleys form? You know, I think that might have been the start of the science thing. Mind you, it wasn't my favourite. So my favourite subject in school was English for a long yeah. time, you know. And then a biology teacher, I guess you probably have the same. We all got similar stories, haven't we? I had a great biology teacher for uh, the leave insert. And our biology really got me. I got Fran Mooney, who I've given, you know, credit to, because he really inspired many of us. So I guess it's the usual kind of thing. You kind of, you kind of, you kind of bump into it, don't you? You know, very few of us say, I wanted to be a scientist from the get-go, I suppose. Mm. And actually, that's interesting because one of the questions I do ask people is, is there kind of a mentor or someone who you look back on in school who encouraged you? So I'm assuming that, that your biology teacher definitely did that for yeah. you. Yeah, he was a straight, he was a young teacher. We, we, we may have been his first class kind of thing, you know. And he was a really cool kind of guy. He, this is back in the um, late 70s now. He looked a bit like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Do you know Scooby-Doo? Did you ever see Scooby-Doo? Um, Shaggy was the hippie guy. And we called him Shaggy, that was his nickname. And he kind of slouched in and, you know, began teaching us about DNA and all the usual, and, oh, well, this is really good. So I think, I think it, was, it was his personality partly. And, and obviously his love for the subject as well must have shone through and the way he just described it to us. And I'm not joking, I remember vividly, um, you know, in our, they said of the oral exam in Irish when you do the, you know, mm. and, and, and the teacher asked everybody what your favourite subject was. And we all kind of heard this. And something like 20 of us said, Beholiet. So that, you know, which is amazing. So mm. I, I think, Fran influenced many of us, really. And then throughout, you know, secondary school and when you were kind of coming up to the leave insert in the CAO, you know, I know you went on and studied in Trinity, but can you talk me through your choices there or kind of what you were, what you were thinking about at that time? Yeah, well, I, I think I was on to medicine and I thought, oh, medicine looks interesting because it's, it's, it's a job, isn't it? And you might get a career out. We're kind of aware of that little bit. Um, and I put down medicine on my CAO form, actually. I, think I got enough um, grades in the mocks to, to get me into medicine if I remember correctly. And then between then the change of mind, right? I said, oh, mm. I'm going to change the science. And I think it was partly because I thought medicine would take too long. I thought, get, get a science degree and get in and out. You know, that was one reason. But I became more aware of 
like I remember biochemistry strangely was an area that I began to read more about you know I became aware there were like clinical biochemists and that got my attention so I changed my mind then into science actually much to my mother's uh, distress because she obviously quite liked the immediate medicine you know so so in the end I changed my mind and then got into do science yeah and then and then I'm in Trinity and then I just got every day not quite every day it, it took a couple of years to really get into it I suppose once I was in fourth year the final year the, the bug really bit I suppose yeah and so after your kind of final year of college in Trinity did you go straight into a PhD or was there a break there yeah well I, in my final year I, I just really got into it big time and and we great we great lecturers in Trinity to be honest I mean I've got lots of mentors there Keith Tipton was the head of biochemistry he was a real inspiration Bruno Orsi who he sadly passed away a couple of months ago Tim Mantle you know, they got us into the subject hugely and I began to really engage with it then, you know. Mm-hmm. But the turning point, Megan, came with the research project in the final year. I did a project like we all do, you know, and I did a project on Crohn's disease. And that was my first step into inflammation and in the inflammatory process. And that really got me. And I think, you know, when you read the literature for the first time, the primary papers, I began to realize, oh, this is getting better and better. So by the time I'd done the project, I figured I've got to do a PhD because I knew to stay in science, to be a research scientist, you had to get a PhD. So that became the next goal. And then I just began applying to places. I, I realized inflammation was the area then, actually. And I began to apply to different places. And I applied to six places in the end. I wanted to leave Ireland, by the way. This is 1985. Mm. And the country was in bits, you know. And there was mass emigration happening. And I think half my class emigrated, actually. Good. So I said, I, I, I'll emigrate as well. And I knew it would be adventurous. And I wrote to London. I, was, I wrote to Bath in the UK. Uh, I was even offered a place in the U.S. in St. Louis, which I turned down in the end. But they were all inflammation-based. Everywhere mm-hmm. I wrote to, in those days, you had to write letters. Uh, it was all inflammation research. So they knew that inflammation was going to be a thing that I was, you know, maybe going to work on and get interested in. So that, that was the process there. And you weren't kind of nervous about emigrating or you were kind of saw it as a big adventure? You were excited to go? Yeah, I mean, yeah, a little bit. I mean, leaving home and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I, I remember vividly thinking, if, if I was to stay in Trinity, and I had a couple of offers to stay, and we sit on the same train every morning, you know, they've been up for the past four years, so let's do something a bit different. And then I knew, um, you know, living in London, I went to London eventually, what a great idea, living in that city, I thought that'd be quite good. But of course you're a bit nervous, you're nervous that you might have made the wrong decision. You don't know the lab you're going to, you mightn't like them, or your supervisor could be, you know, people would mm. say to me, oh, it's better the devil you know. So, so I, did, I was slightly cautious, I must say, but then I said, I have to hell with it, you know, I'll give it a go and see how I get on. And how did you find your PhD over London? Was it an experience you kind of look back on and you say it was stressful or, or you enjoyed it? I think I was lucky, Megan. I had a great supervisor. Uh, the department I was in was brilliant. Now, again, when you pick a place, you don't really know that. So you need a bit of luck, I suppose. I guess I'm, I, went, I remember I went from the interview and I could get a sense of the place. And I, I liked the supervisor. I got Graham Lewis was my PhD supervisor. And, and I liked the vibe. I picked up on that a bit, you know. Uh, and then it, luckily I got it right because it was a great department. And I learned a huge amount and, you know, really good science was going on there. And I like living in London as well. That was, that was fun. So, uh, no, I look back on, that, on those years very fondly. So talk to me a little bit maybe about your research and your PhD and then kind of how that led into the career kind of that you've built now uh, working in immunology. Yeah. Well, my project in Trinity was about prostaglandins, as you well know, these inflammatory mediators. In those days, they were the hottest part of inflammation. And they cause swelling and pain and, you know, some of the key features of the inflammatory process. And what got me was drugs like aspirin block prostaglandins. And that was interesting. I thought the pharmacological angle. Mm. So my PhD actually was in pharmacology because when I went to do my PhD, that's where they discovered that aspirin blocks prostaglandins. 
guy called John Bain, and he won the Nobel Prize for discovery. So that was the pedigree of the place was very strong. And then when I got there, then my project actually was about these newfangled things called cytokines. Now in those days, there was only two interleukins, IL-1 and IL-2. It was known IL-1 could drive prostaglandins. And my project was to work on the mechanism of that. Oh, that's interesting now because signaling was part of my thing that I was doing anyway. And so the project was all about how IL-1 was able to induce prostaglandin production. And then we made a couple of good discoveries. We discovered inducible cyclooxygenase, actually, which became a big thing later. Now, we didn't direct evidence for it. Mine wasn't the key paper by any means, but, but I did have a paper in that area, but mechanistically IL-1 drives that. And then, of course, I got into cytokines big time. I worked on TNF in those early days as well. IL-6 was a big interest to me. Uh, and then the next stage was I did a postdoc. I, I, I said I'd stick with cytokines then. I knew that the postdoc was part of the career track. And then I did a postdoc in Cambridge on IL-1 signaling. And that got me into the receptor system, NF-kappa-B. So in other words, it was always a kind of a, a sort of a continuum getting more and more mechanistic in a sense. And again, I was lucky enough then to make a couple of discoveries as part of my postdoc as well on the NF-kappa-B system, for instance. We were the first to show rapid NF-kappa-B activation with IL-1, for instance, was a big part of that. Uh, and then it just, it just kind of it kept, it kept getting worse and worse, I suppose. It's like a disease you can't shake off. And um, it's a thrill, Megan. You know yourself. I mean, you've done, it, you've done a PhD. It's tough because things don't work and you get demotivated at times and it's not all happiness, really, you know. Mm -hmm. But when you make a discovery, it's a great thrill. And I realized, oh, this, this is new now because I've discovered something interesting that nobody's seen before. And, and that, that was always the biggest thrill, I suppose, to make because we are scientists, so our, our number one threat to make discoveries. Yeah, and I think kind of one of the questions I do ask as well is kind of what drives this passion? Like, why do you get up every day and you say, I'm going to go into the lab and, you know, kind of instruct? I, I know you're kind of head of the lab now, but you're, you're still kind of at the center of forming ideas and making um, yeah. investigations and experiments. So, you know, for you, what do you think is, what, what do you think drives that passion? I think it's all about our personalities in a way. Now, I, I knew I didn't want to work in a bank or an insurance company or whatever. I'm not knocking those jobs now. They're fine if people are in them. But I hated like the nine to five routine stuff. I, I, I think I always was going to do something a bit different, you know, whatever that might have been. That was one thing. And being a scientist, especially when I was PhD, a postdoc was quite radical in a way and anti-establishment. And it wasn't a nine to five job by any means, you know, and that, that appealed to me. And then secondly, it's intellectually fantastically stimulating. You know, I realized I could read all this stuff and learn it. And that was quite thrilling. And then to get new ideas and do experiments and actually find stuff out. And I think the other thing that drives many of us is the notion of solving a puzzle. So you're doing experiments, you're trying to crack some problem. It, just, it doesn't have to be a huge question. It can be even something quite small. Mm. But there's a satisfaction in uh, you know, solving some outstanding question, I suppose. That's satisfying as well. And then that, that's what science is all about. But then remember, we're in biomedical science. So you're doing stuff that might be relevant to a disease. And that makes it even greater then. Because if you can make a discovery that might give rise to a new medicine or a new insight into a inflammatory process in my case that might help that thing along a little bit that was the real add-on then because you're doing something that's got, got great meaning in a sense now you can't depend on that because it's such a long shot so you got to depend on the intellectual rigor the curiosity part absolutely you know and just mastering something and doing it well that's a big thing that motivates us too i think so all those things kind of add together and as i say it's not nine to five you're not working for the man you know, you're working for yourself largely. And that's another key aspect. In other words, if you, if you worked for a, a bank, you'd have a boss. I'd ha I've never had a boss, really. Mm. Now, you have kind of bosses, you know. But in truth, it's all about autonomy. And that really appealed to me as well as a thing. 
Yeah, and, and I think you kind of touched on it there, you know, the fact that you might be affecting a patient's life or someone that's kind of touched by these chronic inflammatory disorders. So maybe just give us an insight into why the immune system is so important in health and then why it can go so wrong in disease. And I know yeah. that's quite a broad question. Um, so sorry. And that's, <laughs> that's a great question, Megan. That's the essence of what we do in a way. You know, I mean, I realized, yeah, so getting back to the, the motivation part, like even though you might make a discovery that gives rise to a new medicine, you might add a little bit to the overall totality of the knowledge of, say, like I worked on macrophages for years, so you might get a little piece in the puzzle of a macrophage. And the reason why that's thrilling is people would ask you, I've got arthritis, and you can explain to them what you're doing, and they would get a little bit of benefit from it. So I've always felt that what, throughout my career, even though you might say to someone, I've got a cure for your disease, just telling them about it and explaining it to them, that, that's rewarding because they like that and they want to hear it. And, and they, they're often very appreciative just, just simply of the knowledge of what's going on. Because if, if someone has a nasty disease and they know someone's working on it and they know it's very complicated and you're helping them understand that, that can benefit them anyway. It doesn't mean you're giving them a new medicine. So, so that was a key part of it. And of course, that's what drove me into inflammation because there's so many diseases where inflammation is at the core. I mean, nearly every disease has an inflammatory dysregulation, if you like. And that was the big thing because, you know, clearly inflammation is good for you. It does repair damage. And if you sprain your ankle, is the great analogy, I suppose. It's sore and swollen. That's to make it better. So the inflammatory process is the body's ultimate self-healing thing, really. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the next thing is we know what goes wrong. And it beats up your joints, as you know, in, in rheumatoid. And it beats up your brain and Alzheimer's. All these diseases have inflammatory bits that are misbehaving if you like so so any research into that then might come up with a way to stop that so so this is why the immunology part is so important because of course inflammation is a key part of the immune system the cells that drive inflammation as you know are immune cells the macrophages th17s nk cells they're all part of the inflammatory process you see so so in other words to work on inflammation you had to become an immunologist by the way uh, in a way and, and my background was more pharmacology initially and then i became an immunologist because i knew that was the science where this inflammatory process really lies you see and then and then once you're into the immune system it expands into infection mm. and of course look at COVID-19 that is effectively an inflammatory disease really because you get massive lung inflammation so it, so the relevance to COVID-19 became all the more apparent and then because we'd worked on inflammatory pathways then we could begin to apply that to that disease so so in my mind inflammation lies at the heart of so many different diseases that still need new treatments. I mean, we need to unravel the complexity of these pathways to come up with better ways to treat them. And that, that's the ultimate goal of all this research, of course. Yeah, and, you know, I think you kind of focus a lot on kind of innate immunity or the first line response and, and the macrophage. And, you know, you don't need to convince me as to why the macrophage is very yeah. important because it's uh, the, the, my favorite cell type, what I did four years of work on. Um, but maybe just for people out there, what, what, like, why do we study macrophages or why are they so crucial and link so many different diseases um, and are basically at the epicenter of so many different yeah. diseases? Yeah. Well, that's right, Megan, as you well know, the macrophage is the frontline cell in many ways, and it evolves to be this way. Every organism has a macrophage almost, at least mm -hmm. all, all animals do, you know. And this cell patrols the body, it's looking for any kind of damage or infection, and it's the first front then in the, in the war that will emerge, I suppose. And, and it's such an elaborate cell, it can sense damage, it can sense all the nasty bacterial, viral factors, and then it can make stuff that wakes up the immune system. So that's why it's so important. And as you know, it makes all these cytokines and they wake up other cell types. It makes inflammatory factors like prostaglandins to cause vasodilation, say, you know. It, it, it's amazing. I remember early on, actually, when I began this, we did an experiment with TNF. TNF is a great macrophage activator. Because TNF, as you well know, became the key thing in 
arthritis when I was working on it. It hadn't been really implicated in arthritis at that time. Um, that when, when you put TNF on a macrophage, something like six percent of the macrophage shifts to responding to TNF. It's a massive increase in gene expression of all these inflammatory factors. So, so it was always clear that, and of course this goes back to Mechnikov in 1908, who first describes them, that these were the frontline cell. And then we learn more and more about them. And their job is to drive inflammation to either fight an infection or indeed repair tissue when, when the battle is nearly over, you know. And, and therefore, when they begin to go wrong, then you see these diseases emerge. And then the big breakthrough in my business, as you know, Megan, was the TLR discovery because that, they're the sensors. And they weren't known when I was doing my PhD, they hadn't been discovered, you know. So these are the sensors. They sent LPS in, in bacteria, as you know. They'll also send damaged tissue in various ways. And then rheumatoid, they'll sense things like, um, you know, tenacin C is one, as you may know, a factor. So in other words, they are sensing damage. And the damage is either from an infectious agent or from damaged tissue. And that wakes them up and then they start driving all the next downstream events. And that, that's why they take so much of our attention, I suppose. But they are part of the innate response. They aren't as smart as T-cells, because T-cells actually have very specific receptors that are t tailored to one molecule. And then, and then secondly, T-cells have memory, as you know, as macrophages don't have much of that. Mm. So, but it's the interplay between the two that makes all the difference in us. Yeah, and, and I think another area that you're very interested in is this immunometabolism field. And I kind of heard you speak before about how, you know, kind of 10 or 20 years ago, it was all about genetics and to kind of, you know, uh, unraveling the human genome. Whereas now who would have ever thought we'd be kind of so focused on the biochemistry of yeah. metabolic pathways. Uh, and maybe just talk to me a bit about how you got involved in, in metabolism yeah. research and, and why it's important in inflammation. Yeah, that, that became, I think we were lucky in a way, several labs, probably 10 years ago, and I actually began to work on this. Now, we'd seen, it had been known for 50 years that when you activate the macrophage, it starts to make loads of lactate. Mm. as a byproduct and that was known and you know the question was what does it mean and that's glycolysis this metabolic pathway and we all thought that was mainly just for atp production because of course we've learned about metabolism from our biochemistry that it's about mainly energetics it can be about biosynthesis as well but it all seemed a bit sort of um you know important but not wouldn't reveal too many new insights and then once we dug into it more and, and, and again from my point of view it's all about again mechanism it's what's happening inside the macrophage when it's being turned on and lo and behold, we discovered in 2013, these very specific metabolic changes were happening after, say, you activate the macrophage with LPS, the gram-negative bacterial factor. And once we'd seen specific changes happening, it became like another signal, I suppose, you know. So in other words, just like other things like protein kinases being activated or whatever, it is a signal. Metabolic change became a signal. And very specifically, then you could see certain metabolites changing in, in certain contexts. And we began to map that. And then we began to realize, well, if we interfere with that now, if we can block those metabolic events, you may suppress the inflammatory process and have an anti-inflammatory effect. So, so it was kind of a, it grew out of signaling in some ways, mm. I would say, as yet another process that's being regulated by signaling pathways and then expanded up into this big area. I mean, I, I'm as surprised as anybody else how this took off as a, as a huge area for many labs then. And we're still kind of in the middle of it in a way, you know? And, and um, I, I just think, you know, it's yet another example of how complicated these things are in a sense. And a big thing was we had to rethink our view of metabolism, actually. That, that, that began to happen as well and began to sort of, uh, you know, realize it's not just about ATP. It isn't just about making and breaking molecules. It's actually about what we call a phenotypic change in the cell, you see. So, and that opened up a whole vista then. And what, I think what happened as well, Megan, was that what, we were doing stuff on macrophages. Other people like Jeff Rathway were doing T-cells, you know. 
our very own Dave Finley, Claire Gardner, with an NK cell metabolism. So, so every immunologist almost with their favorite cell site began to map these pathways. And you begin to get this immunometabolism field and begins to grow and grow again. Yeah, and, and I think especially, you know, with regards to a macrophage, it's interesting because it can, as you spoke about this phenotypic change, it can have kind of two very distinct and polarized phenotypes. And they can be switched on and off with, you know, differences in, in their metabolic requirements. And in the field as well, there's talk of these metabolic inhibitors or targeting one aspect of metabolism. And how would you, or how do you kind of view the uh, opinion that that might have off-target effects? Or yeah. is this, you know, is this kind of confined to a cell that is dysfunctional, mainly? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you, that, that's, we all would think that because of our lectures in biochemistry, how can you tamper with these fundamental pathways? It's bound mm. to and badly. That, that's not true, it turns out. Again, you've got to rethink it now. And very specific metabolic changes happen, say in a macrophage. And it's not so much you want to turn it off completely, just ramp it down. Mm-hmm. And if you ramp it down, the, me- the background metabolism can go on anyway, you know, and the cell isn't going to die. Uh, and then lo and behold, as you just said there, if you, if you block certain metabolic events, the macrophage changes into a different state. So that's a fascination, isn't it? So now, now you would wonder, all right, if it might affect other highly metabolic active cells, and you might see some untoward effects there. That doesn't seem to be the case so far. It looks as if these specific changes can be targetable. And then, as I say, all you're trying to do is ramp down a dysfunctional process, you see. And, and the other area that metabolism was, had, a, had a reawakening was cancer, of course, and they wonder could they block metabolic pathways in tumors because metab- tumors have interesting metabolic change as well. The problem with that is you couldn't kill the tumor in that process. And the goal of cancer therapy is to kill the cancer cell. And it turns out those cells are very plastic. They can adapt a lot more. In the immune system, you don't want to kill cells. You don't, that, that's, you don't want to do that. You want to actually just reprogram them. So we see it as a more feasible strategy. But we, of course, the truth is we won't know if they're in the clinic and we're testing some of these things. The other hope, Megan, was, as you, as you well know, I imagine, things like methotrexate. I mean, they're metabolic reprogrammers. They're used for rheumatoid, uh, a drug called dimethylfumarate. That's used in MS. And again, that targets metabolism. And they aren't especially toxic. There can be toxicities associated with them, but they're not so toxic as to limit their use. So that gave us hope, actually, that there were drugs already in humans. Metformin is another one, of course. You know? So they all are pretty safe. They're causing a metabolic reprogramming event that could be anti-inflammatory. So in many ways, our mission now is to get better drugs than those, you know, mm. that actually are more specific or less toxic in the case of methotrexate. So, and they could replace those drugs in a sense. So, so all those reasons suggest to us that it mightn't be as toxic as we would have feared. I suppose, could you maybe talk me through kind of what a normal day in the lab looks like for people in your lab or what cells you work on or kind of what strategies you're using? I know one of your big targets at the minute or one of the things you're looking at is itoconate and maybe talk to me a bit about that as well. That's, well, what happens in my lab is I don't know because I'm never here. <laughs> no, that's not true. I've, I've been here more than ever. I'm driving my lab nuts now because I'm not traveling as much. So, uh, well, I mean, they're a great bunch. Obviously, I've got, I've got what, 15, 14, 15 people at the moment, a mix of postdocs and postgrads. They come in every day. They're in shift work, of course, at the moment. Like, you know the way they're, we have mm-hmm. some of them in the morning and some in the afternoon, which is most peculiar because you know, people, are, people all arrive together at two for the, for the uh, uh, evening shift. It's a very strange world, isn't it? Um, but yeah, no, I mean, they are, they, they are, they're all working on different aspects. I mean, we've got four or five people working on itoconate. We think that's got huge potential because that's a very interesting metabolite that goes up in macrophages. We think it's anti-inflammatory, broadly speaking, and maybe antiviral. We're looking at COVID-19, of course, with that molecule as well. 
big paper yesterday, Megan, on Iticonic. Did you see it? It's, it's by Ian McInnes, a rheumatologist in Glasgow. You may have come across Ian. Mm. Where they measured, they could find that metabolite in plasma of rheumatoid patients, right, who were coming out. They were, they were given, like they were early arthritis patients. Mm. They gave them DMARDs of various kinds, as you know, and they made idoconate. They could correlate the level of idoconate with resolution of inflammation. Isn't that amazing? Mm. They could also correlate it with the decrease in CRP, which, as you know, is a key inflammatory biomarker. That's human evidence. Idoconate must be anti-inflammatory. At least adds to that argument. We may change our minds as data emerges. So we're very keen to map exactly what that molecule does and what its targets are and how it mediates its anti-inflammatory effects. PKM2 is a big target for us. We found that in macrophage regulation three or four years ago now, I guess now in TH17s, we've got several people plugging away on that one, you know. And then we're doing pyroptosis. Uh, we did a nice paper on caspase 11 and asthma recently. So, so they're all kind of working on, again, hardcore mechanism and trying to map these pro- very complex things to get key nodes of control. And all those projects are about trying to unravel some of that complexity. Yeah, and like as a head of a lab and as a PI, how do you find that, you know, management of, of many different people? And also, are you kind of itching to get back into the lab sometimes or are you happy to have taken a, a little bit of a step back now? If I, was in, if I went back in the lab, I'd break everything. I, I, don't, I wouldn't know what I'd be doing. You know, and, um, I used to enjoy it. When I was a postdoc in Cambridge, measuring NF-kappa-B was a real thrill. So, yeah, it's a different job entirely. Like, when you become a PI of a lab, you suddenly realize you're full on then. You know, at least when you're in a lab, you can skive off and the gel is running or whatever, and you get a result, you know. Um, but being a PI, yeah, running a lab has a many different demands. Now, obviously, I began doing it early on in my career, and then I quite liked it, and... You know, I, I don't have any issues. It's fantastic in a sense because you've got like 15 different people out there doing different projects. Mm. Uh, one of them is going to be working. You know, the big disappointment, I'm sure you had it yourself when things don't work and oh, you're unhappy. If you're a lab head, at least one person's getting something to work in your lab. You know, you can, you can selfishly enjoy that, you know. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, you have a number of responsibilities. I think autonomy, again, is the key. Where everybody has their own project. I don't see it as me as the, the lab head and them as the team. It's a collaboration between us. It has to be that. And that was like me when I was a postdoc. You got into the lab and you got on with it. Your supervisor would guide you occasionally or suggest things now and again or maybe, you know, train you how to interpret things, which is great. But by and large, it's, it, it's, it's um, autonomous activity where everybody is, has. To, there's no reason, you know, to be in a lab unless, unless you really want to be there and you're doing your own project for yourself. You know, you can't be doing it for someone else. Mm. And, and that's, if that's someone else as a boss, that's really negative, I think, you know. So it's very important to have this idea that everybody in the lab is a sole trader in a way and doing their own projects. And that's the way I run things. My, my job is to keep the money coming in to pay for everything. And that, that's not trivial at times, as you know, raising grant money and all the rest of it. Um, and then secondly, bring my experience and my expertise. And we, we sit down, we go to the data. I might say, try this instead of that, you know and they might ignore me, which is fine. I've always felt the key moment for me is when someone comes into my office and says, Luke, you, were, you got it wrong. <laughs> Here's the data that I believe in. You know, that's a key thing, because that means, oh, that's great. They're making progress here. You know, so I think, I think it's very important for it to be a collaboration, is really the essence of it. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I'm also interested, kind of throughout your career, do you look back and is there a moment where you found it like extremely stressful or you were thinking, I want to get out, I don't want to be in academia anymore? Luckily not. It does sound a bit strange now, but no, I've never, I mean, you have days when you're pissed off, you know, things like that, like life does that to you occasionally. But no, I've never lost the vision. I suppose I, I might've got a feed. I've been here quite a while. I mean, I came back to Ireland in the early nineties and I've run my own lab now for nearly 30 years. It was a staggering thing when I say that. So sometimes you ask, oh, should I go somewhere else? 
and maybe I'll take a job somewhere else. Just for, but again, the sense of adventure, I suppose, because, you know, you feel like, oh, I've been here for years now. Mm. But I've never done that because I've never felt I couldn't do my work here. You know, I've always been able to do my research in Ireland. I've always ha- had sufficient money. Great people over the years in my lab. Was, I think, I've been lucky in Trinity because we've got a great system to train them. You know, and they come through immunology and molecular medicine and these degrees. And many came into my lab and they were brilliant people. They're fantastic. So, so there was never any reason. There was no push to go, you know. And then, of course, I could do sabbaticals. I was in Stamford um, before Christmas, for instance, this year. I did a big sabbatical in, in Melbourne, you know. Uh, I did one in Boston. So, and, and that would keep you going because you've you got to do that because you've got to be talking to other scientists and collaborating and getting ideas going. So, so that, that was always a, a little safety valve, I guess, to say, look, oh, should I, should I go somewhere else? I think if I hadn't had enough research funding, which could have happened because the government might have stopped funding me or whatever. Or if I felt I couldn't recruit, then I'd have to go because that, 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 then I would have a downer. You know, I, I thought mm. this is not the place to be. So, but by and large, now I've been, I've been able to crack on for these last, these last couple of decades, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think as well, like throughout your career, you've got a lot of different interests. So I know you've, I've mentioned in my intro, you're a published author of two books. Um, so yeah. hum, Humanology, I actually have myself. Uh, I haven't got your children's book yet. <laughs> right. I haven't had a need. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, so talk to me about them and why, why you decided to, I suppose, firstly write the first book. Yeah, well, that was, that was a strange thing in a sense. I know my, my, my main passion is the lab, of course, and doing science and making discoveries. But I've always liked to communicate science because I'm, I'm, I'm a lecturer and I've always enjoyed that part of my job, you know, teaching the students. And that's really thrilling as well. And then I got, I got into doing stuff on the radio. It began with that, actually. A woman called Ingrid Hook, who used to be in pharmacy here, she was the wife of a guy called George Hook, who you may or may not remember. And George was on News Talk, and he got me on his show a couple of times. I quite enjoyed it. And then it escalated from there, you know. And now I'm on, I'm on twice a week at the moment, driving people demented. <laughs> but it kind of crept up on me. It was never a career plan by any means, you know. I just, I just kind of stumbled into it and quite liked doing it. And then people liked what I was doing. And again, it was a sense of, you know, remember, it's a thrill to communicate this stuff anyway. And my job is partly to be a communicator through my teaching and my lecturing. And here's a way to communicate to the general public. I mean, it's brilliant. I also think it's an important function for us scientists that they're, they're paying our wages. Remember, the tax, the tax, you know, returns to the government are funding my grants, are funding my, my academic posts. So that we should be telling everybody what we're doing and informing them. So I see, I see it as an important responsibility of us. Not everybody can do it. That's fine. It doesn't have to be everybody. Some of us can do it, and we're quite good at it. If you don't want, don't do it. But some of us have to do it. So that was always in the back of my mind. And on the back of that then, Gil, the publisher, approached me and said, let's turn uh, your radio stuff into a book. And I said, well, I don't know, because I'm too busy, and how do I write a damn book? And I've never done it before. And, and yet again, I kind of took a chance on it and stuck my neck out and gave it a go. And then Humanology came out. It was great. And, and, then, and then they said to me, oh, there's a gap in the Irish market for the kids' book written on science by an Irish scientist. And that was the next book. And now my third book, I've just done the proofs yesterday, Megan. And it'll be out in October. It's called Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Science. <laughs> the book. So it's like the science, it's the science behind big questions. Okay. So I've got chapters like, why won't you vaccinate your child? Which is, of course, close to my heart and yours. I'm sure as an immunologist. I've got a chapter called Why You Reckon the Planet, which is all about climate change. So it'll be a slightly more serious book because it's about big issues and how science informs them. So, but again, yeah, it, was, it wasn't difficult to do in a sense because I've often got notes from the radio anyway and many topics I would have covered on the radio show in a sense. And then I can write. I don't seem to have any difficulty get, getting the words out. So, so hey, presto, the, the, books are, the books are there. And it's, it is, yeah, it's a separate thing really from the day job. Mm. But again, it's the same thing in some ways, at least with regard to my academic role of being a teacher, you know. 
And now I've got, I'm teaching lots of people in a sense, you know, and hopefully they might listen and learn things. Yeah, and and it's what you know. Your new book sounds uh, sounds great, but even in the in the humanology, you know, you've got chapters on why do we laugh or why do we listen to music and and you know why are the science of love and how did you kind of research them or is this all from yeah. the radio show? Well, they were directly off the radio show, so everything in humanology was directly from the Pat Kenny show because I'd covered those over the course of a year or two, I suppose, and that made it easy to write because I'd all my notes for those anyway, you know. So the research is kind of done. There are things that interest me. I, I've always been struck by, you know, like why do you fall in love with someone, not someone else? Or why is music so compelling to us as a species? You know, and then, and then um, as you said, the humour chapter. And uh, another thing that fascinates me is the history of us as humans out of Africa, you know, and how we evolved and the traits we have based on that evolutionary pressure, you know. And that, that's chapters like how Irish mammies got it right. That, that was a title that I mm. thought would intrigue people, like how you bring up kids. I mean, you know, I mean, these are questions that we all are interested in, aren't they, Megan? And then, and then you can bring science to try and answer them. So, so I guess the, each chapter was stuff that interested me, I suppose, was, was the reason why the book. And then the book, Annie Curtis, actually, a former postdoc in my lab, she was the one who gave the idea of the order of the chapter. So it begins with how life began, you know, and then how humans evolved. And then what makes us special as a species, so all those various things. Then finally, death, you know our extinction as a species and then you know finally the future so so there the, was a neat little narrative there that made the book kind of you know easy not easy to write but certainly the order of those chapters made it a bit of a bit of a story and any game the idea so I, I, I thank her and the acknowledgement because i remember had a cup of coffee there one morning and i, said, I can't get the order of the chapters she said, it's obvious just start with the origin of life and end with extinction you know <laughs> so oh yeah i didn't think of that yeah so but that made it a bit easier to to write in some ways yeah, actually, I had um, Annie Kirsch on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago as well, and she was just ah, very, very fondly of her time as a postdoc in your lab. Uh, she said she had to wait for you, though. She had to wait a few years for, for you to offer a postdoc. She was ready. Oh, yeah, well, she had a great history, Annie. I mean, she, she, she did a great PhD with Gareth Fitzgerald across the States, and then came back and worked for SFI, worked for industry mm. in SFI. And then, um, and then this, I think she, heard, maybe probably told you, Megan, she decided, oh, no, she's a bit like me. Wanted to be a research scientist, you see, and then, and then she brought all that circadian stuff to my lab. I mean, my, that wasn't my area at all, you know. And she she came to my lab and carried on with that work, and we got a neat paper. And now she's doing great stuff at her own lab now on that whole area. It's brilliant. Yeah, no, and it's it's really nice to talk to I suppose uh, Irish researchers specifically, and and those kind of who are willing to kind of open up and, and chat about their research and kind of how they got to to where they are today. Yeah. But one one of my kind of last questions for you is: if you weren't a scientist and if you weren't Professor Luke O'Neill, where do you think you would be now, or how do you think your life would have ended up? Oh, no, there's a really interesting question. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> um, well, I suppose. In my new book, actually, I've got, I've got a chapter called Why Are You Working in a Bullshit Job? That's the title <laughs> of the chapter, right? And it's kind of a joke. You look at work and the jobs we choose to do, what motivates us, you know? And I talk about um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Did you ever hear this, Megan? This mm. psychologist called Maslow. And it begins with hunger and thirst. And then you go through various needs. The top one is called self-actualization. Now, what that means is you, 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 you do things that you really believe in, you really feel a part of you, your personality. And it might be to be a musician or, you know, a carer or whatever it might be, you know, and then you're, you're actualizing your kind of identity in some ways. So I'd have to do something that would self-actualize. Sounds like a terribly pompous term, doesn't it? <laughs> um, it'd be something in, 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 in teaching, I think. I probably would have been a teacher anyway or some kind of educator because I really believe in that as a key thing. You know, maybe a librarian or a bookseller, but something around that would have been 
another possibility, I guess. I'd end up in those things. I think maybe I was always heading towards teaching of sort. I mean, I mean, some people say I'm always teaching people. That, that's actually what I do. It could be on the radio. It could be in my lab. It could be whatever. So, so and I, I think teaching is one of the most important things we do, actually, as a profession. Mm. And I make the case for it in, in humanology. I don't know if you've got that far yet, but I've got a whole section on teachers and how important they are. So, so I think that might have been the thing. And and I know you're also in a you have a, your own band. I feel like I'm going to get the name wrong. The Metabolics, is that right? That's it. You got it. Perfect. The Metabolics. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me about that. How did that come about? Well, one of my hobbies was always me. I'm sure you've got hobbies as well. One of my hobbies is music. I've always played guitar, and piano, and just as a hobby, you know. Mm. Now, what I've done a few gigs over. When I was in Cambridge, actually, I was in a band, and I made a bit of money at the weekends and stuff, you know. When I was in London, I busked on the underground a lot, actually, with mates. It was great fun, you know. And then I've been in bands now and again. And then at parties, you'd play. And, and it began to ramp up a bit at conferences, as you may know. Sometimes academics get up and play and entertain the delegates on the last night of the conference or the party or whatever. So I began doing a bit of that, you know. And then the big thing that happened was in 2017, I organized a big conference in Dublin. It was a Keystone conference in the RDS. And, and the organizer, the Keystone people said, what, I entertained the crowd? And I put the band together for that. And I, I was a few mates got together, basically. And, and uh, there, were, there were three medics, friends of mine, uh, a, a, a neonatologist, Colm O'Donnell in Hollis Street, Brian Murray, who was a neurologist. And, and we just kind of clicked as a group. And then we said, let's keep doing it. We called it the Metabolics because the conference was about metabolomics, you see. So that was a good name for the band. <laughs> now, I thought it was going to be a one-off, Megan. You know, that we do the gig and that would be the end of it. Uh, but then we liked it and we did more and more gigs, you see. So, and then it turned into quite a big thing. We must have done 50 gigs at this stage. Now, we often play at conferences. That's our main, one of our main things. And then we got a, a local pub in Dalkey near where I live. They, they would book us the odd days of Saturday night. We, we began doing gigs there. So, so I'm as surprised as anybody else that we're still going because it could have all unraveled very easily, you see. And, of course, because of all, a lockdown, we haven't played together in quite a while, actually. So... We, we hope to get together again, I guess, to, to keep doing it. Now, we did, we did bring in a couple of professionals. Uh, in fact, okay. our guitarist is a guy called uh, uh, Superb Guitarist, Chris Cole, and he, he was brought in by Brian Murray. He was, he was teaching Brian's kids guitar, and we needed that because we're amateurs. You know? so they make us look good, I suppose, is the answer to how it works. Really. And, they, and I thought they would ditch us quite quickly because they're professionals, and they quite liked it as well. So, hey, presto, it kept going. And, and who's are you the singer or who's the singer I, I sing some of the songs yeah we, we mix it up you know the best gig is when four or five of us take lead occasionally <laughs> you know and we we get people singing their favorite numbers i suppose but they're very talented i mean chris is a superb guitarist we've got we got a guy we've got a guy on keyboards rob 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 is on keyboards he's superb rob mcvain he's super, you know so in other words it's a mix of us I, I, to be honest it's a big mix of ages megan i think the youngest is like 20 you know okay. the eldest is nearly 60 so I, I my analogy is like a circus comes to town you know and i'm like the ringmaster and we got a juggler and we got the trapeze artist and we just entertain people that's the idea here you know it's great fun brilliant um well luke thank you so much um i, I don't want to take up any more of your time because i'm so grateful that you have taken the time to chat to me today and um, so yeah thanks again for coming on the podcast no problem always happy to help megan and well done on your phd that's great as well <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks brilliant So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.